Good morning, everyone. I'm Paul Gross, an extension educator in Central Michigan, and I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, virtual breakfast this morning. This is the uh, last breakfast of the season, uh, so we're happy to have everyone here, and we're happy to have uh, Dr. Christy Sprague with us this morning. But just a few things before we start. Uh, we're going to have a poll come up here soon, but uh, to the collection of demographic data for program participants is important and a mandated aspect of all Michigan State University Extension programming. This is voluntary and the information that you provide will not be used in any way to identify you personally, but rather as an anonymous member of, that participated in this program. So if you would please take a moment to fill out this survey. Uh, we'll just give you a few moments to get uh, get you an opportunity. And we also wanna let you know that all of the programs at Michigan State University Extension are open to everyone. Uh, we just wanna make that clear. So we'd really appreciate it if you'd fill out, uh, take a moment to fill out uh, that demographic information. Okay. You know what? It doesn't look like it's going to work today, everyone. So, well, let's move well, on. We, we appreciate the attempt, the, the attempt, anyhow, Phil. So, uh, Phil, are, are you going to talk a little bit about evaluation? I am. Well, everyone, as we finish the season up, one of the things that we really value from everyone that's in uh, our participants and our, our people that have been associated with Virtual Breakfast we need your help and feedback. Uh, at the end of the season, it's really important for us to have good information that we can share with uh, others as far as this program. And so I will be sending out through MailChimp, which is the email uh, server that we use to send the reminders. I will be sending that out to every person that participated this year and asking for you to help us with what kind of changes you've made in your farming operation because you've participated in our virtual breakfast series. So think about those things. And when you get that email, please fill that out. That information won't take long, but we really value your comments and anything that you can do to help us out. So with that, uh, look for that probably around the end of October, the 1st of November. Hopefully we'll have much of our crop harvested by then. It looks like things are drying down. So look for that and please help us out as much as you can. Okay, thank you, Phil. Just a little bit uh, more housekeeping before we get into the presentation. Uh, please mute yourself during the presentation out of respect for everyone in the speakers. Uh, please sign in with your first and last name. Uh, to do that, click on the participant icon, find your name, hover over it, click. Um, and it, it allows us to get your name typed in properly and correctly and type your name into that window so we can adequately, adequately credit you for your RUP credits. So with that, I'm going to stop sharing and welcome Dr. Christy Sprague. Good morning. Good morning. Let's see, make sure we get this up here okay. Uh, be good on seeing the presentation there, Paul? Yes. Good. Good. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, today, I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about um, what we might be able to do this fall when it comes to weed management. Um, I think like Paul, uh, we were one of the, or I was one of the first virtual breakfasts. So I think we're going to end it up talking a little bit about uh, weed management and uh, some of the different things that we um, can see. So um, as we're driving around many fields, we can see that uh, 
We've got some soybeans look pretty clean, but we also have some fields that uh, have some wheat escapes. And I would say this year, some of the ones that we've really had issues with are some late season velvet leaf that have come up, um, some lambs quarters that were maybe a little bit tougher uh, to control, particularly because of some of the dry weather that we had in areas around the state about that time that some of those post-emergence herbicides were made. Um, both ragweed species and then um, kind of our uh, more uh, issues that we see each year with some of our herbicide resistant weeds like uh, horseweed or mare's tail, um, both palmer amaranth and water hemp. Here are just a few pictures of some different fields where we've uh, where we can see some weed escapes. Um, obviously, uh, these are some that have had a lot more issues than just a few late season weeds coming in, but uh, maybe not necessarily having the right herbicide program um, to manage the particular weeds that are out there. And I just want to point out in the uh, lower right-hand corner, um, you can see a field where uh, there's some common cockleburr. And that's a weed that's kind of having um, a re resurgence, um, one of those ones that we used to deal with in the past, and it's really starting to come up as a problem a little bit more. Um, and so that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. So what are some of the things that we can be, that can be done at this time of year? Well, right now we're obviously too late for some of our in-season herbicide applications, but um, what we can really do is kind of plan for the future and scout for some of those different weed escapes that uh, might be out there. And really what we can do is evaluate how effective our program was this year. And, um, you know, usually it's pretty easy to kind of do some of that scouting uh, in soybean fields, but as you're out there harvesting uh, your corn this year, kind of keep note of where you might have some of those weed problems and think about how you can manage those the following year. The other thing is at this point, we can definitely identify where there are some new weeds in some of the fields. And I would say probably this year, one of the things that I have seen is there are a lot more fields where water hump has become more of an issue. So some newer areas, newer fields. So that's going to be something that we're going to concentrate on is um, as far as um, this winter, talking about what are some of the better programs to make sure that we're managing uh, water hemp. And again, one of the biggest challenges with some of these weeds, whether it's water hemp or palmer amaranth or mare's tail, or in some cases, some of the uh, ragweed species are some of those resistance issues. And uh, Dr. Aaron Hill did a great job last week talking about uh, testing for herbicide resistance. So um, as you're going and looking at for some of those weed escapes, uh, if you feel that you have some resistance issues, this might be a good time to um, actually test for resistance. And again, Aaron did a fantastic job talking about how to do that, how to collect it, but just keep that in mind. And um, really some of the ones that we really need to be thinking about is particularly the water hemp, because I know, um, you know, most of the water hemp that we have is glyphosate resistance and also resistant to the ALS herbicides. But we're also seeing in a few fields, some resistance to what we would consider the uh, group 14 or PPO inhibitors. So those are things like Cobra and Flexstar. And it would be a really good idea if we've got water hemp showing up to find out if we have that resistance uh, issue in some of those fields, because that's gonna definitely change how we might manage it in the future. So what else can be done? So 
Um, many times when we do see weed escapes, um, you know, it might be just a small patch. So for example, this is a, a field that was down in Southwest Michigan that we saw several years ago that had some Palmer amaranth that had some escapes. And if you have a small patch like that, and particularly some of the pigweed species, they don't necessarily shed their uh, seed. Um, they don't shatter like some of the other species. So if you could actually just go out there and for some of those small patches, get those uh, weeds out of the field, that's gonna really help lower those populations um, uh, and definitely making sure that you don't get that going through uh, the combine. Um, also where we have some new weed issues, um, especially some of the resistant weeds, um, if it's a pocket somewhere, um, you may want to just harvest around that weedy area so you're not getting that seed into your combine. Or if you're going to harvest that field, make you know try to harvest that area last because then you can not or try to do your best in making sure that that combine's cleaned out and that you're not spreading that um, those weed seeds from one field to the next. Now, we also have the option of using, using some of these different harvest aids, and we call these uh, some of our pre-harvest herbicide treatments. And I'm going to mention a little bit in soybeans. Um, one of the things I do want to say is that a lot of times these uh, harvest aids aren't necessarily commonly used in soybeans, but I will mention them and uh, maybe talk a little bit about some of the pluses and minuses. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of those harvest aids and dry beans, because that is definitely an area where we get the most uh, use. So in soybeans, we do have some different options that we can use. Um, obviously, glyphosate is one of those products that we can use as a harvest aid. Um, and you can see here some of the different uh, harvest aids that we do have. We have the pre-harvest intervals for each one of those applications. So for example, with glyphosate, um, in a Roundup Ready soybean, um, you can use three quarters of a pound of glyphosate to help desiccate some of those weeds to maybe, you know, for example, something like lamb's quarter, but you would have to wait 14 days from that time of application up till the time of harvest. If they're non-Roundup Ready beans, um, it's a seven day interval and you could actually go up to a much higher rate of 3.6 pounds per um, equivalent per acre. Um, obviously, gramoxone is another herbicide that we can use. The one thing that's a little bit different between soybeans and dry beans is gramoxone um, use rates in soybeans are much lower. Uh, so maybe not as effective if you're a dry bean grower, you kind of know what you get with uh, gramoxone, but um, you're kind of looking at a, a two thirds of the rate that we normally use. So um, it may not be as effective as what you might see in um, uh, with dry beans. AIM's another herbicide. Um, you can also use some lower rates of clarity. Um, that's probably just going to twist some of the tops of those weeds up. We haven't had much luck with that. And then Sharpen's another product that can be used. And we've had some really good luck in helping desiccate some of our resistant weed issues, particularly things like glyphosate-resistant mare's tail, um, and maybe help with some of the pigweed and ragweed species with uh, Sharpen. And you can either use one or two ounces. And you can see some of the different pre-harvest intervals where they can go from anywhere from three days up to 14 days or 15 days. Now, when we talk about some of the harvest aids that we can use in soybeans, obviously we have those six different options. But one of the things you always wanna consider if you're thinking about using a harvest aid in soybeans is making sure that you choose the right herbicide for the weeds that are present. So for example, um, you wouldn't use glyphosate if you had glyphosate-resistant mare's tail or water hemp to do uh, for a desiccant. 
Um, something like germoxone or a combination of germoxone plus Sharpen would probably work. Um, additionally, as I mentioned, we have seen some resistance issues in water hemp that are resistant to the group 14s. Sharpen's a group 14 herbicide. So if that's the, the case, um, we wouldn't necessarily want to use that herbicide. Another thing to consider is really when we're using a harvest aid in soybeans, we're really looking at trying to desiccate the weeds, not necessarily the soybeans. Um, and when these different desiccants can be applied is um, with things like glyphosate and um, clarity would have to be when those soybeans are mature. And then that basically means that there are no green, uh, there's no green color in any of the pods that are out in the field. So again, waiting for those soybeans to be mature. Um, when we look at things like germoxone and Sharpen, um, it's a little bit uh, wider in window. Um, we're looking at greater than 65% of the pods being mature, but we want that seed moisture to be less than 30% moisture. And um, in the case of Sharpen, you can also look at the field. And if you have 70% leaf drop, that might be a good time to actually use something like Sharpen if you're looking at desiccating some of the weeds in that soybean field. Another thing to consider is what uh, the rotation restrictions are. So depending on what your rotation is, so for example, if you're gonna um, harvest your soybeans and plant wheat, one of the uh, choices out of those six that you wouldn't wanna use is clarity. Um, and that would be because we would see some injury on that wheat if we had used clarity as our rotate or as our desiccant. Um, with sugar beets and dry beans, there's some more restrictions, and we'll talk a little bit more about those when we talk about some of the dry bean uh, desiccants. Um, we have a lot of this information in our weed control guide, so if you're looking at some more information on those desiccants, uh, please look at pages 113 and 114 in the 2022 weed control guide. Now, with our pre-harvest treatments and drybeans, those are definitely more common. I would say um, probably greater than 80% of our drybeans in Michigan are desiccated. And again, that's really to help with the weeds that interfere at harvest. And it also kind of helps with some of the unevenness in uh, maturity of drybeans. And here are just a few pictures of some of the different options that we do have. And these are ones that were applied way too early, but just to show you the the speed of quickness of um, how these work. Um, we've probably had some of our better uh, results when we've looked at some of the different tank mixes and I'll show you that here. So um, in general, Sharpen and Gramoxone have been our two go-to desiccants in dry beans. And again, that might be something to consider when we're talking about, if you're thinking about doing it in soybeans. And in general, we've seen that one ounce of Sharpen is, um, pretty similar to the two ounce rate of sharpen. So depending on what you're trying to do, um, that has worked pretty well. And in general, we've done probably uh, eight to 10 years of research. And a lot of times if we use that lower rate of sharpen and take mix it with germoxone and making sure that we have a methylated seed oil in there, we seem to um, improve the consistency of desiccation. And again, we've looked at several different varieties over several different environments. And one other thing is a lot of times we're looking at desiccating some of those weeds. Um, Sharpen is a good desiccant for, again, some of the mare's tail or pigweed species, but uh, we really need to have that germoxone in there to help desiccate something like lamb's quarters. And you can see here um, uh, that picture and what that looked like. Um, and that would have been about seven days after that um, application. 
Another thing, just to remind you of, there are some uh, rotation restrictions. Um, in particular, we've seen some issues. Uh, if we've used the higher rate of sharpen, and in those fall desiccants, particularly looking at uh, dry means, um, and you can see here with the rotation restrictions, this uh, uh, foreground, we had some reduced um, sugar beet stand, and uh, the use rates really varies, or the amount of time needed, with sharpen, it'd be four months for the rotation, four months for the rotation to sugar beets. Um, and we want to make sure that we're not including the time when the ground is frozen in that count. So just keep that in mind, where it's a month longer for using that higher rate. And um, we have also seen that same issue with uh, dry beans, and those rotation restrictions are very similar. So keep that in mind if you're going to be using sharpen as a desiccant and you're going to be going to um, uh, sugar beets or dry beans. Definitely uh, use the one ounce rate and not the uh, two ounce rate. Another thing that we're going to talk about a little bit is some of the fall applications that we can uh, use. Um, and what we can also do is one of the bigger issues that we have is some of the horseweed populations. And um, you can see a field once it's harvested, a lot of times we see a lot of new emergence of uh, horseweed or mare's tail that we need to take care of. And some of those fall treatments, um, again, can be used either prior to corn or soybeans, and that'll help um, reduce those populations in the spring. It also helps reduce some of the variability in the horseweed size if we have to um, go out there with a spring treatment. In many cases, we do have some um, uh, later emerging mare's tail that can come up in the spring and through the summer. Uh, we're still going to want to make sure that we have a residual. And in some cases, we are going to need that spring burn down. So count on that. But we can definitely help. And you can see these pictures here. The top one would be a fall burn down. Uh, the bottom had a uh, no fall burn down. And those burn downs will also help manage a lot of the winter annual weed species that are out there. In general, if we're looking at trying to manage mare's tail, um, we want to have one of these three herbicides in that mixture whether it's 240 ester or any of the 240 products, uh, sharpen it one or two ounces and dicamba can also be used um, as a fall treatment. And those treatments can be applied. Obviously um, putting glyphosate in when those mixes are gonna help control some of the winter annual weeds and some of those perennials like uh, dandelion that can be out there. And those fall applications are probably one of our best ways to help manage things like dandelion instead of trying to wait until the spring. We also have several residual herbicides that we can add in there that can also um, uh, enhance some of that fall burn down. But a lot of those residuals are not going to hold through uh, to the spring to help control some of the different species, in particular um, uh, glyphosate resistant mare's tail or horseweed. Another thing I want to mention is controlling weeds prior to planting wheat is also very important. Um, Last year, we did a study where we looked at uh, conventional tillage, no tillage with fall application burn down, and then also uh, no tillage without a fall application. And one thing that we did see at the end of the season is that uh, there was definitely a benefit to making sure that we had good weed control in the fall, particularly um, things that are going to be there after you harvest those soybeans and try to get that winter uh, wheat crop in the ground. So what are some of those um, fall burndown herbicide options that we can actually apply prior to um, weed emergence? So we can either apply it uh, 
prior to uh, drilling that weed in the ground or making sure we get those applications on prior to the wheat emerging. Obviously, glyphosate is one of those key components where it'll control most winter annual, biennial, and perennial weeds, again, especially dandelion. Uh, one of the key misses that we do have is with horsewheat or mare's tail because of that glyphosate resistance. Um, because of that, a lot of times we might be adding sharpen in there. And again, we can use one or two ounces, and it's been very effective for horseweed control. In fact, this last year, we had a trial where we were looking at um, including that sharpen in with the glyphosate. And because of the good um, wheat stand that we had, we were able to suppress a lot of the mare's tail that might have come up in the spring, just uh, due from the competitive nature. So by getting that uh, good start with the sharpen in the fall, in that burn down, that definitely helped with our um, mare's tail control. Another option we have is germoxone that can be applied. It's not as effective as glyphosate. Um, again, it's gonna be a burner, not gonna really do a very good job on our perennials or biennials. It will control uh, the horseweed or mare's tail. But um, if those plants get a little bit larger, it's gonna be much more of a challenge. We also have the option of applying some of our wheat herbicides in the fall um, after the wheat has emerged. And that's really to control a lot of the winter annual weeds that might come up with winter wheat. Things like chickweed, um, also mare's tail, some of those. And generally we're applying those herbicides when the wheat is at the two to three leaf stage. Um, again, controlling those winter annual weeds. Um, and here's some of the work that we did this last year looking at chickweed control. This is um, a rating uh, partway through um, the spring. And when we had a fall uh, burn down or fall application, we definitely had much better uh, chickweed control. Um, one of the downfalls is with some of these post herbicide applications in the fall, they may not provide enough residual activity through the spring. So it's one of those things that we just need to keep an eye on. We're going to be doing quite a bit of uh, fall herbicide work this year, looking at early planted versus late planted uh, wheat. And some of the different choices we have are things like Husky, Talanor, or Culix, which would be very good for our um, controlling uh, some of that emerged horseweed, particularly when that wheat has emerged. Another area where we've seen some huge benefits is in controlling some of the winter annual grasses. Um, particular with windgrass, um, fall applications have worked extremely well. We've had very good annual bluegrass control. That has become much more of a challenge and we've also seen some really good rough stock bluegrass control. So it's just one of those things to keep in mind. Um, just to show you a quick application or uh, comparison, this is a uh, wind grass control with Osprey. This would be a fall application. Um, that picture on the right-hand side is what that field looked like. If we didn't apply it in the fall um, uh, or no herbicide application, and this is with spring apps, um, we had pretty good control, but not as good as what we had in the fall. So again, these were taken at the same time. And again, um, we've had very good luck with annual bluegrass with either using Osprey or PowerFlex, or if we have wind, or rough stock bluegrass, the Osprey works best. Another benefit to some of those fall post applications is being able to establish red clover. And you can just tell the difference here between an application of Husky in the fall versus the spring, if you're gonna be doing some frost seeding. Um, but we can see maybe a little bit of injury from those husky applications. So um, we do have uh, our recommendations and there are some of these products that we can apply in the fall and then still frost seed red clover 
So things like Affinity Broad Spec, Husky, uh, Clarity, MCPA, Axial Bold. Um, some of the other ones, we know we have some issues with establishment um, and uh, with Culex, but, um, and then maybe a little bit of reduced stand with things like Osprey and Powerflex. So um, when can you make those applications? Generally, we'll make those applications anytime from uh, late October through mid-November. So that's kind of the time frame that we're usually looking at. And just to uh, give you a few more resources, again, a lot of the information I just covered um, is in the MSU Weed Control Guide. Um, you can find that on our website, msuweeds.com. We have a lot of our different back sheets listed on there and also in the back of the uh, Weed Control Guide. So with that, I'll uh, turn it over to uh, Paul again, and I'll be around to answer any questions. Very good, Christy. Thank you very much. We've got several questions in the chat, so uh, we'll move on to, to Jeff's uh, presentation, and then we'll come back to the questions. Paul, did yep. you want to do we do we want to try and do that poll again? Uh, yeah, go ahead uh, while I transition. There we go. So we're asking everyone to please uh, fill out this demographic poll. Sorry about the uh, inconvenience here. If everyone could please fill that out as fast as possible, that would be great. And then we'll get started with Jeff. Unfortunately, I just go ahead there. I can ask one question to Christy. I know Dave put in about foxtail and corn this year. He's seeing a lot more of that. Is that something you're seeing or? You're muted, Christy. So um, with foxtail and corn, I think probably some of the issues we might have had, um, depending on where you were in the states, I think some of the uh, trees may not have been incorporated. So that could have been some issues. And I think we're seeing a little bit more later emergence. So, um, and I'm sure Aaron will cover some of this this winter. But one of the options that we do have is just to make sure that um, we get some residuals on that will hold out a little bit later in the season. Okay, Christy, thank you. All right, Paul, I'm gonna end the poll. Okay. And I'm gonna have you stop sharing your screen and I'm going to share my screen and then hopefully this is all gonna work out. Well, good morning. And welcome to our last weather briefing here for vir the virtual breakfast series this uh, season. Uh, you're going to see here some themes. So one of them is this change that we've uh, probably all experienced here just over the last uh, 12 to 24 hours. But uh, there are more changes coming. And I think as we look ahead, uh, our outlook, uh, there's some consistency in it and, uh, and pointing in, the, in a warmer and drier than normal still uh, type of direction, which I think again is uh, for for uh, many agricultural activities is is probably a, a positive thing. But I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a second. So I'd like to start off though, uh, looking here at first of all the last week and where we've been. Uh, on the left hand side here, you can see it was another warmer than normal week, uh, significantly warmer in some spots, uh, three to as much as six degrees Fahrenheit above normal across the state. And that was true over almost all of the upper Midwest as well. At the same time, depending on location, uh, it was certainly for 
northern and eastern lower Michigan uh, and portions of southern upper Michigan, another drier than normal week. And it was a drier than normal week across the south until the beginning of this week when we had uh, a frontal system go through, actually a couple frontal systems go through here with uh, half to one inch or greater totals uh, here, uh, most of that which fell on Monday. Uh, at my house in Hazlitt, I measured 1.87, which was the heaviest rain we'd seen here in, in actually some time, a couple of years uh, at this particular location. But it was as a result of several different showers and thunderstorms that fell, uh, again, mostly Monday evening and uh, into the overnight hours uh, then. And it, it changed things, but it had been drier than normal up until that point. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just, uh, in just a moment. Looking at, uh, the, since this is our last briefing here, I did want to say something about the growing season itself. And that is, uh, it was a warmer uh, than normal growing season for much of the state. That's uh, on the left-hand side here. This is, and this is the June, July, and August. So the summer season here collectively uh, uh, characterized and uh, one or two degrees Fahrenheit above normal. So it wasn't a large departure, but it was warmer than normal over most areas. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but most of the state and region did end up warmer than normal. And we did have uh, a little bit of a surplus in degree days. I'll, I'll, you'll see that here in just a moment. Uh, the I think the bigger story probably is, certainly is the precipitation. And as we look on the right-hand side here, you can see a pattern which I think is characteristic of not just the summer, but much of the growing season itself. And that we had surpluses of precipitation in west central and some southern areas of lower Michigan, also portions of uh, western portions of upper Michigan as well, where the greens here, uh, you can see a, an inch or so, a couple of inches, uh, and even better than that in the far south, uh, a departure from normal for the growing season. But in contrast, and, and really importantly, we did have areas of northern and especially eastern lower Michigan here into the southeastern portion of the lower peninsula where our precipitation has lagged behind normal for much of the growing season. And there we do have some areas with departures of several inches uh, from, from normal. And, and, and again, and depending on location, depending on soil type, that has been a continuing problem. We currently have about uh, 32 or 33 percent of the state uh, classified as abnormally dry in, in terms of from the U.S. drought monitor here. And much of that does reflect the area you're seeing here uh, from northern lower into east central lower Michigan. That's that's where we still have at least relative to normal. That's where we have the driest portion of the state. I mentioned degree days and uh, on the left hand side here, this is a seasonal total going back to the beginning of May. And, and it reflects again, thinking here primarily about uh, about corn and uh, thermal time and, and accumulations of degree days and the pattern that we've had all year and that is uh, surplus of growing degree days across southern portions of the state. You can see that uh, here on the map pretty evident and then some minor deficits as you go way way up north uh, into upper Michigan and you can see there's also other areas of the region that do have some deficits but that that pattern has shown it, it developed early in the growing season we've had that throughout and uh, it, it, it they're not large departures one way or the other and the south you could argue maybe that uh, at least in terms of degree days we probably have a good calendar week surplus <clears throat> or ahead of normal and on the right hand side here this is something you may have seen a, uh, a graphic from the uh, U2U 
project here looking at uh, a growing degree day accumulation. This is a an application for a uh, hypothetical corn planted on the 10th of May. And I, I just use an example here for Ingham County, locally here uh, in, in East Lansing. Uh, so it's a 103 degree, uh, 103 day relative maturity hybrid planted on May 10th in Ingham County. And the key is here, you look at the, the green our conditions this particular year is an accumulation of degree days. And what this application is used for is basically to tell us something about how likely we are to reach physiological maturity or when in, in the fall season and relative to typically what we would see the first killing freeze. And in this case, I'm using 28 degrees Fahrenheit as a killing freeze. So there's a lot on here, but just let, let me talk about this really, really quickly. Uh, the green line, again, is what actually was observed. The purple line is the long-term climatological normal. And what you can see from this first off is that we have had a consistent surplus, like the, the map on the left-hand side does suggest. It also suggests that as we move in here uh, closer into the future, and this green line here, this is black layer of physiological maturity. You can see that right now, what the at least with this simulation for that that hybrid uh, or 103 day, a, long, a little bit longer maturity rating here locally for that uh, that type of a hybrid that we are right now should be reaching black layer or physiological maturity. I have a research project with Manny Singh uh, here locally, and 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 our observations would uh, would match us pretty closely. And just as importantly, as we look at the future here, uh, all these blue lines here, these are killing first 28 degree temperatures of the fall, the distribution of those. And when they occur, and you can see typically, climatologically, the risk of this uh, starts in the, the last week or 10 days of September uh, through the month of October. The most common time this, for this to occur is mid-October. And then uh, we go all the way into uh, some cases, some years, we don't see the first 28 until the month of November. But the big issue is here, as we look at this curve here, the dash line is what's projected with climatology. Looking ahead, that for this particular example, uh, not only is uh, is the crop uh, at or going to reach maturity, it's going to do that before we see a killing freeze. So the chances of getting hit this year uh, for most people, I would think, would be fairly relatively low. This is, I think, this is a favorable outcome or certainly good news, and it suggests again that we won't have problems other than in situations where the crop, uh, the planting was abnormally late for some reason, or it was a long season cultivar, but uh, it's with the warm weather this season uh, that that shows up here. So that that's a favorable outcome, at least suggest that uh, we won't have much problem with, with this this year. I mentioned the research project we have here locally. I would also note that given the very warm, dry week that we had over the last, uh, well, the last uh, week to 10 days, uh, we were, were observing corn dry down, actually, one of our observations we're taking on a daily basis in the same field in the same place. And we've had incredibly, well, very, very favorable conditions for dry down. And that uh, the corn that I, particular plots that I'm looking at uh, decreased from 40% moisture on the 3rd of September uh, down to a mean of 24% on the 10th at almost 2%, a little bit more than 2% per day was what it averaged. And that's that's really, that's about top end, I think, uh, very, very high for, for Michigan. So very, very favorable conditions if you, and I know many of you, some of you already, of course, started with this, uh, with harvest or just really beginning in earnest now, but the things uh, with that warm, dry weather, it really helped move things along here out in, uh, out in the real world. 
Well, looking at our forecast here, I did mention changes, and of course, uh, we 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 can feel those now. It's uh, significantly cooler, and we are looking at uh, actually a very active weather pattern, and it's characterized by uh, high amplitude jet stream flow across North America. So big, both big ridges and big troughs are likely to uh, impact us, which means some fairly large swings of weather here over at least over the next week. On the weather map this morning, big uh, area of high pressure here in the northern Great Plains, and that is that air mass is right out of Canada, and that is the reason why it feels so much cooler. This is the this is the coolest air mass that we've seen move into the upper Midwest here so far this season. And again, there's a lot of evidence out there with with temperatures in uh, some cases the uh, the upper 40s. We're not going to see today. Uh, high temperatures make it much more than the 50s, maybe a couple 60 degree readings in the far south. We also, uh, given the temperature of this air mass and given that the Great Lakes are still well into the upper 60s and even some low 70s, we will see some lake effect rain showers in areas. So uh, there is a chance, especially in those lake effect areas, northern and western, uh, well, northern and western lower, and then northern upper Michigan, we could see some scattered showers, very little in, in terms of amounts, but uh, there will be clouds. It will also be very breezy. You can see a lot of black lines or isobars packed here, uh, indicating a fairly steep pressure gradient. So a much cooler, breezy, uh, and and uh, an early, definitely a fall type of uh, feel to things here today as, uh, as, as the day goes on. Down in the lower right-hand side here, you can see some curved isobars. That is Hurricane Fiona. Uh, still a Category 4 as of Thursday morning, and it's headed northward. It looks like it's going to uh, move to the, just to the west of Bermuda and give them some high surf, but fortunately not a direct hit. But as you will see here in the forecast, we're not done with Fiona yet. Uh, it looks like it's going to make a landfall somewhere in the Canadian Maritimes here in a couple days. Here's a forecast for tomorrow morning, and you can see the center of the high pressure is moved to uh, looks like Berrien County here in the southwestern corner of the state. And uh, that means that we're going to see a, a fairly chilly overnight here tonight. And uh, mention that here just in a moment, but uh, it does set the stage for clearing and calm conditions. And probably for some, at least some parts of the state in the north, it will be the first freeze of the season here. Uh, next weather system though, just to the west of that, you can see off into the Northern Plains that gets here on Saturday, but I'll talk more about that in a second. But first, looking at overnight temperatures here, we are looking at, uh, as I mentioned with that high pressure, some sub-freezing temperatures, primarily across Western and Central portions in the interior. Upper Peninsula would be a little warmer than that, right on the shorelines. Across much of lower Michigan, generally, the mid to upper 30s probably is what we're dealing with. So what that means, no, probably no freezing temperatures, but we may see some frost formation, especially in low-lying areas where cold air ponds. And again, it would be for most areas, it will be the first uh, such event here we've had this, this season. But it, I think that the big message is that for much of, much of the, at least for the lower peninsula, we're still going to be looking at more growing season. We won't see, it certainly won't uh, be freezing or uh, that's not, that's not likely right now, uh, at least from the, uh, what we're seeing, but uh, mid to upper 30 still could, uh, still could lead to some scattered frost in some low lying areas. So don't be surprised if you see that tomorrow will likely be the coldest day with this particular weather system, uh, this high pressure system that moves through, it'll be warmer by Saturday morning. And here's the map for Saturday morning. You can see the next weather system uh, approaching the state from the west. 
Uh, it is not a big uh, rain producer. Greatest totals and the greatest uh, threat of rain will be across the north, across upper Michigan and into the northern lower. That will begin mostly later in the day on Saturday. And then we, we're looking at a, a, a trough, another troughing feature moving into the region here over the weekend and into next week. That'll mean a continuing chance almost on a daily basis, Saturday, late Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and maybe even Tuesday, where we will see the threat of showers. Right now, it looks as though the greatest threat for rainfall with uh, with this pattern will probably be on Sunday and possibly in the Monday. Uh, not looking or expecting heavy rains, primarily a tenth to a quarter of an inch where rainfall uh, does occur, but uh, there will be, and it will be uh, still cool uh, with temperatures generally from the 50s north to the 60s south. A little bit warmer here uh, this weekend, but then cooling down once again uh, into the 50s for the early part of next week. So a very, very fall-like pattern. One last thing you can see here off to our north and east, you can see uh, Hurricane Fiona moving into the Canadian Maritimes, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland, uh, that part of the, the world. So again, Fiona is going to probably have more impact uh, before it becomes extra tropical, or it's in the process of becoming extra tropical at this time, but still more uh, of, still more to deal with with that particular storm. Now, for precipitation totals, given what we've just talked about for the weekend, we are looking for generally another drier than normal week here coming up with uh, less than a quarter of an inch over most areas, especially across central and southern lower Michigan. A little bit higher, you can see the the uh, blue shading here near the lakes. That's, that's the attempt of the forecasters to add a little bit of lake effect. Some of that would be here today. Uh, also, maybe a little bit uh, early next week, but uh, mostly, again, lighter light precipitation totals, the highest totals likely to be across uh, upper Michigan and the far northwestern lower here over the next week. But for most people, it will be drier than normal. And again, that that should help at least continue the, uh, or at least uh, reduce the threat of, of delays in terms of field work in the next day. One last thing about this is we look at the pattern into next week. I mentioned a highly amplified pattern with lots of uh, well, big ridges and troughs, and uh, most of this upcoming week, we will be seeing troughing across the, the region, but by late next week, ridge moves back uh, into the area, and there's also now a lot of uh, a lot of consistency. The outlooks are also calling for the formation of another tropical disturbance in the Caribbean, possibly moving into the Gulf by late next week uh, and into and, and possibly impacting the U.S. That's something to keep an eye on. But certainly we would we we it does suggest a warming trend by the middle to latter part of next week back to above normal levels. And given that, looking here now at the medium range, you can see that in the outlooks. And I'm going to show you both the six to ten and eight to fourteen day time frames. In the six to ten day outlook, which is the last few days of September, you can see some of what I was just talking about: troughing over the Great Lakes and over the eastern part of the U.S., ridging over the west, and with the mean temperature forecast here on the right, you can see that Michigan's still in that normal to below normal. That's that's certainly what we're looking at through the middle of next week. Also note, down below, just as importantly, very, very high probability of drier than normal. That, that's, that's also consistent in our outlooks. But by the time we move into the first few days of October, you can see some movement. And so these, these patterns are actually uh, progressive. They're moving from west to east across the U.S. and a flattening out of the jet stream flow here across uh, North America, leading to certainly a moderation or an increase in mean temperatures. And I think that's a that's a good bet 
for looking uh, again as the month ends and, and October begins, we should probably be seeing a warming trend. At the same time, though, a continuation of drier than normal conditions is expected. So uh, thinking again about harvest and field work, this is going to probably permit things to continue on. Uh, even though we may have showers at times, uh, the fact that uh, the amounts are going to be below normal should help in terms of keeping things moving. Now, the new long lead outlooks uh, for the, well, the remainder of the fall and into the early winter. On the top here, we've got October mean temperatures. And on the upper right uh, is precipitation totals for October. They're similar to what we saw before last month, but uh, definitely still calling for warmer than normal conditions here during October. That is also true for the three-month outlook, October through December. You can see that down below in the lower left. And almost the same forecast for precipitation, the equal chance or no forecast direction. Uh, they, the forecasters just didn't have much to hang the hat on, but if anything, Certainly looking here at the next few weeks, one would, I think, still conclude warmer and maybe a little even a little bit drier than normal, especially given that medium range forecast guidance. So uh, uh, looking, thinking again about harvest and so forth, that is that is a positive thing, I think, to allow things to move faster than they typically do. Uh, and then finally, looking at our outlook for the winter, the big news here is that La Nina conditions continue. Uh, down the equatorial Pacific. That's what this time lapse is down here below. The blue areas here are all cooler than normal sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern equatorial Pacific. That's the sort of the signature of a, a La Nina uh, event. And with that, our, our mid to late winter, especially uh, outlook, this is December through February, the three month period here. You can see normal to below normal mean temperatures especially as you go west from Michigan. But the, the bigger, the bigger I think, signal here, and more important one, is that it does also, in La Nina years, we typically see above normal precipitation. And given the temperatures, that means probably above normal snowfall. Not always. Uh, and it's this is true with all of these. This is, by the way, this is the third consecutive La Nina winter that we've had uh, in, well, globally. That in itself is unusual because these these events typically happen on on average climatologically once every two to seven years. That's for one uh, of these winters. So the fact that we've had three is unusual. It's only happened twice since 1950. Uh, the and the other part of that is that the stronger these events, and that that typically reflects things like how how cool or how warm are these anomalies here. This is not a strong event. It's a it's a moderate intensity La Nina. Uh, and that typically is correlated with how likely we are to see these these impacts. So uh, we had a La Nina last winter and we did not see the weather and climate impacts that we typically do. So just a reminder, this is the best uh, that we probably have in terms of of a, a forecast tool. But still, it's not uh, it, it's it's not foolproof and uh, the statistics don't always tell the whole story so but for what it, it's worth now it's still that that uh, wintry type of of uh, scenario that one would expect during a la nina winter finally the last thing here down on the bottom these are monthly uh, probabilities or seasonal probabilities of what's happening in the pacific the blue bars here are the likelihood of la nina conditions in a given season and and what this basically says is that la nina is likely to continue or persist through the upcoming winter before dissipating next uh, next 
spring and the gray line there that's the neutral scenario that's what's in between what we don't have if if we don't have either la nina or el nino which is the warm cycle or the warm phase of the el nino southern oscillation the grays in between and so what the, the all these outlooks suggest is that yes la nina continues for the next few months but we go back to neutral by the middle of next year and and that's uh, that's what these these outlooks reflect and so with that, I will wrap up. Uh, again, we've we've seen some pretty significant changes here just recently. We'll see more of that over the next couple of days with an unsettled and cool uh, fall-like type of pattern. Maybe some freezing temperatures in northern parts of the state the first of the of the season. But for most of the state, we'll we'll continue. This is not a killing freeze. Uh, very likely, uh, very unlikely to see killing freeze conditions in the southern part of the state. So the season will continue there. And then, as we just saw with the medium and longer term guidance, we are after after some cool fall-like weather, likely to see a return of warmer and probably drier, a little drier than normal conditions here late in September and into uh, early October. And that should, that should help things along here uh, with, with uh, wrapping up the season. So with that, I, I thank you for your attention here uh, during the season and wish you good luck with, uh, with harvest and, and in the off season. Thank you. Okay, very good. Uh we're going to go to questions in just a minute, but I'd like to thank everyone for attending. Uh, if you have to drop out, if you want to see the recording of this uh, presentation, you'll be able to see it on Spotify, uh, the Apple Podcasts. We'd also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, um, or look at our website for information about the virtual breakfast. So I'm going to stop sharing. And I'll just Chris a, just a one more comment. Chris Defonso has put the link into the chat for everyone that would like to check their credits with MDARD, that link is in the chat. Very good. I know that's a new feature that they just came out with in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's going to be very helpful for everyone. So thank you, Chris, for doing that. So yeah, Chris, yeah, I, I want to say it's, it's a, like a PDF and you have to scroll down like a hundred pages to find your name in alphabetical order. So you don't put in your name. You have to just scroll down through everybody's name. But it, but it works. It works. That's the important thing. So, Christy, have you had a chance to uh, filter through some of the questions? Sure. Um, I can kind of just go through them fairly yeah. quickly, Paul, if that works yeah. pretty that well. That works the best. Okay. So, the first question, I've had a few calls lately asking about DFL, um, if it can be used on, uh, as a soybean harvest aid. Um, it is labeled um, that sodium chlorate. Um, it, there is a seven-day pre-harvest interval. I will tell you that I have not looked at it, so I really don't have any good uh, practical knowledge on how well that would work. So um, it is something that somebody could try, but I, I've never seen it, so I wouldn't be able to, to give you any practical uh, information on that. Um, there's another question. If we use desiccants, are weed seeds going to have full viability? Um, many of the weed seeds out there are fully mature, so those ones will have full viability. We have some that are at various stages. Um, the ones that are kind of still immature, um, depending on the species, some of them will be uh, basically non-viable. Um, if they are close to being mature, certain species will continue on with maturity after, even after desiccant treatment. So it really depends on the species, but I would say that a majority of our Weeds that have escaped have um, some mature seeds right now. The next question, um, fall herbicide applications or tillage, what is the best way to put a field to bed? 
Um, a lot of it depends on what your goals are. If you are trying to maintain a no-till situation, um, we can do a pretty good job with a lot of those fall herbicide applications, particularly trying to clean up some of those perennial weeds and things like mare's tail in the fall. Um, and we've had some really good luck with tillage as far as being able to decrease um, uh, mare's tail populations uh, because those seeds are so small to bury. Um, and once they're buried, they're gonna have a hard time coming up the next season. So it just really, it re depends on what your um, conservation goals are as far as if you want um, to main in a uh, no tillage situation or not. Um, again, a lot of those fall applications will help with some of those, those perennial weeds because those herbicides will be moving to the, the roots. The next question, I've heard nutsedge has um, become fairly herbicide resistant even with specific brands that target them and different modes of action. Any advice on this? Uh, nutsedge is a very difficult weed um, and it's one of those ones that needs uh, constant attack. I would say the best herbicide that we've seen with nutsedge is permit, and that can be used in corn and it can be used in dry beans. Other than that, many of the other herbicides are just fair and we need multiple applications. So that's kind of where we're at on that. It's just been a, it's a, it's a very difficult weed and it just needs continuous management. Um, the next question, after cutting soybeans, um, and cutting thistles off, you till and plant wheat. After thistles reemerge in the wheat, can you use stinger in the fall to kill the thistles? Um, you can use stinger after the wheat has three leaves. Um, as far as killing the thistles, a lot of those reserves um, are probably still going to be going towards the top. So the stinger is probably not going to get all the way through the um, those uh, the rootstock. So you're probably still going to see some emergence in the spring. So it may be best to go ahead and wait and do a spring application of Stinger to manage those thistles just to make sure you get um, most of those thistles plants emerging. And then the final question, uh, would you suggest that uh, soybean fields with lots of weed escapes be rotated to corn in 2023 instead of the potential back-to-back -back soybeans to clean up weeds that emerge in the 2022 uh, season. Um, I think it really depends on what your goals are. If you know what weeds you have, we do have some fairly good programs in soybeans, depending on the soybean traits that are out there um, that we can use. Um, and many of those herbicides can be used, uh, that could be used in corn now can be used in soybeans, depending on those herbicide resistant traits. Um, rotating to corn, gives us a few more options, which can be helpful for some of those species. And in general, we do see some benefits, not only from a weed control standpoint, but probably a yield standpoint, if we can rotate to another crop. I know in certain situations, um, you can't always rotate to corn. So I guess it really just depends, but just make sure you know what those weeds are that you're trying to manage in those fields. And I don't know if there's, let's see. There's one other question. I'm seeing more and more velvet leaf escape. So as we prepare for next season, what would you recommend? Um, the Probably the biggest issue that we have is some of those late season velvet leaf. There are some chemistries that will control velvet leaf uh, very effectively post-emergence. And those are the ones that um, would have the active ingredients that are in resource and also in um, cadets. So there's... Uh, 
uh, some anthem herbicide. Uh, it's a premix that can be applied. Um, I think the, the key thing is making sure that uh, we're aware that it's coming. And then if you have those escapes, getting out there early enough to make sure that you're getting those under control. So with that, we'll turn it over to Paul. I think we- Okay, thanks, Christy. I think that's all the questions. I see uh, Chris Defonzo's on and, and I think Marty Childers is still on. So Chris, is there anything you'd like to add from an insect standpoint? Uh, not really. It's been pretty quiet and I've kind of switched over to teaching. So basically I, you know, there's, there hasn't been much or I think I would have heard about it. Okay. Very good. Uh, Marty. Um, there's not really too much to add either on the pathology side of things. Um, I guess, you know, it's always a good time to scout and be aware of what disease issues are out there in soybeans, being aware of, you know, potentially white mold maybe in your fields for management next year and the year, years following. Um, obviously, there's a little bit more task spot increasing with the moisture that we're finally getting in some areas. Um, but obviously, it's very, very late now and certainly not worth spraying at this point in time. So that's all I have. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Phil, is there anything to add? Paul, I think it's been a great season. We've had terrific information. I think that there's been some excellent participation by producers and agribusiness personnel. And I want to especially thank every specialist and every educator that's participated with our program this year. I think it's been a, a rousing success. So uh, one more in the books. And yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's the way to put it. So go onward uh, and forward. Yeah. Uh, we'll look forward to, to seeing everyone again next year and uh, have a good week. Have a good uh, rest of the year and go green. Go white.